welcome to this final Copwatch update on the COP26 meetings in Glasgow with me, Ian Welsh. Well, eventually we got to an agreement, the Glasgow Climate Pact, announced by the UK's Alok Sharma, COP26 president, about a day later than the original deadline. The last minute wrangling eventually came down to the language used around coal. To chew it all over, I caught up with climate journalist Mike Scott, who had joined me on the first episode of Copwatch a couple of weeks ago. Welcome back to the podcast, Mike. Thanks very much, Ian. You spent some time in Glasgow, as did I, and you were there right till the end. So what are your initial thoughts on the deal that emerged on Saturday the 13th of November? I think on the whole, it was a positive outcome. There's a lot of things in there that are good, a lot of things that weren't expected at the start of the conference. So while there is clearly a lot more still to be done, the foundations are there to do that in a way that they weren't at the start of the meeting. I really think that there's a lot to be positive about while at the same time recognising that there is still a huge amount of work to be done. I agree. And I think my take is that it's probably about as good as we could have expected or indeed hoped for whether or not you know, watering down of the wording makes a difference in the, the scheme of things. I mean, I know that they spent three hours debating the, the phrase phase down for coal rather than phase out for coal. And at the end of the day, they had to get it across the line, I suppose. So the phasing, were we phasing down coal rather than phasing it out? So why do you think that ultimately India and to a lesser extent China stuck a spanner in the works at the end of the day? It was less about a desire to remain wedded to coal and more, I think they were just flexing their muscles a bit. And it perhaps comes back to the least noticed part of Narendra Modi's announcements in the first week. Everyone highlighted the 2070 target and the doubling of renewables by 2030. But he also said, and I need $1.3 trillion. I think it's related to that, the, this feeling among many of the developing countries that the finance is still a huge issue. To an extent, they were just making a point. I don't think it would necessarily makes any meaningful difference that it's a phase down rather than a phase out. Nobody is really sure what it means, to be fair. Indeed, it'll never become apparent. Do you think there's anything further that could have been done, though? Or is there just still a general insistence that carbon-free development still isn't possible for a number of developing economies? I don't think that's the case at all. I think that the carbon-free development agenda is very much alive, but there is just this mismatch, which has been there right from the start, between the money that developing countries need and the developed world's ability and desire to hand over that money. But that divide and the figures involved became much more explicit this month. And I think that will have a big impact going forward. Let's have a think about the deal in more detail, though. What are the things that you were excited about? Some of the really notable announcements were India's net zero target and its renewable energy targets, which I think render sort of irrelevant its insistence on a phase down of coal, because as it rolls out all of this renewable energy, it will just make coal uneconomic. I predict that they will meet that target much earlier than 2070. So I think that was quite a big deal. I think that the stuff around coal was really important because you had obviously the fact that it was mentioned for the very first time in a COP agreement, coal and fossil fuels were mentioned. It seems extraordinary, but it's in there. It does show just how much the terms of the argument have changed. Climate scepticism was completely noticeable by its absence from this conference. 
So I think the coal stuff is very important, but actually the specific deal between South Africa and the UK, which provides a real model for phasing out coal developments in the developing world. And I think the methane agreement was very important too, because that is the place where you can have the most immediate impact on emissions because methane is a very strong global warming gas, but it only stays in the atmosphere for 20 years. So if you reduce methane emissions, you can have an immediate impact on the trajectory to 1.5 and you know future climate change. Yes, it was interesting, wasn't it? On methane, you had Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, being part of the announcement on methane cuts and part of the agreement, but also saying it's very easy to do and quite cheap. So one did wonder, well, why hasn't it been done before? If it's so easy and cheap to do, then you should have been doing it already. But that's still not to say it's, it's not very welcome. And I agree, it is absolutely extraordinary to think that never before has the term fossil fuels being put into any agreement at any of the COPs till this point. That, that, it just seems unbelievable that that's the case, but great that it is now being taken more seriously. Anything else that we should be excited about? There was some progress on cars, which was another of Boris Johnson's quartet of things that he wanted to focus on. It was a partial success, I think. Some of the biggest car makers are in there. Some of them aren't, BMW, VW and Toyota notably. But these things have a way of gathering momentum and speeding up as time goes on. And also, I think the fact that they're not in this particular initiative doesn't mean, VW particularly, you know, that, that they're not committed to phasing out the internal combustion engine. They very much are. So yes, I think that was a good one. And uh, forestry, the consensus is that that was quite a good deal. It's less high profile, but one of the notable things about that was the way that Brazil, which came in to the conference fairly militant mood and you know prepared to be quite disruptive changed its stance quite radically in the middle of the first week and suddenly became very cooperative with everything and i think that may be indicative of the pressure that brazil is getting externally both politically and from business and investors to act on stopping deforestation and it's starting to have real world economic effects they're realizing they really have to act Let's look at Boris Johnson's four ambitions then, because he wanted to move the needle significantly on cars, which we just discussed, cash, coal and trees. We've got a movement on coal. What about cash? There is movement there. It's not enough for the developing countries. And there was significant pushback in a way that doesn't look great from the US and to a certain extent the EU as well. But there was movement and there's a doubling of adaptation funding, which is really important. And also, like I mentioned earlier, the nations are spelling out what they need. So Modi said 1.3 trillion. The African nations said they need 700 billion. So we're beginning to put a price on this. And talking of prices, the, the other issue where there was a real success, I think, was we finally got through the rules for carbon markets, the famous Article 6 that was hanging over from the Paris Agreement. And that, I think people have just been waiting to go on that. So that should ramp up the amount of finance that goes into some of these projects in the developing world very quickly indeed. So what was agreed in Article 6? Well, they just actually put the rules in place. So there are pages and pages of it, but they have a rule book now that means that people know what is required to buy and sell carbon credits between countries and also how companies can invest in projects overseas as well, you know, create both carbon credits and, and carbon reductions. And that should drive a lot of finance into those areas. 
Okay, and what about trees? I mean, I guess we did have the initial big announcement at COP in Glasgow was, of course, around the massive agreement on deforestation and the 2030 targets that came out right at the beginning. So that was a really big, got everything off to a big start, didn't it? Yeah, that's right. And it was quite positive. Not necessarily that expected at the start. And I think it's still a bit light on details, as you know, many of these things are. But it gives a very clear direction of travel and an impetus for countries and investors to really start getting involved in this and, and doubling down. And I think and that's something that you could say about the whole conference is that the direction of travel has just become clearer. The science is stronger and the consensus around it is stronger. The investors are on board, businesses are on board. There was a remarkable degree of consensus in the talks. And if you think about what people were arguing about, it wasn't grand themes of disagreement. It was single words. So I think there's a lot to take out of that that's positive. And another key thing is that countries have been invited to come back next year with stronger commitments. And I think a lot of them will do that. And that's indicative of how, you know, we really need to step up action during the 2020s and keep accelerating the momentum for change. There's a definite sense that everybody's now on the hook and there just has to be further movement. I mean, it's interesting, looking over the course of the two weeks in Glasgow, there were a number of surveys that came out and numbers of bit of research that were looking at the extent of the expected warming. One stage, the IEA, normally very conservative, small c, came out saying it's actually now to 1.8 if, if all the pledges and um, commitments are met, 1.8 of warming. That was slightly scuppered by Climate Action Tracker coming out a few days later saying, in fact, it's 2.4 degrees of warming if you look at the actions that are pledged by 2030. But if you look at that, of course, when we were at Paris in 2015, we were looking at 3.7 degrees of warming. So we've already come down significantly. So that's indicative, I think, of the direction of travel. Mike, let's go back to talk about the things that we mentioned when we first spoke before the start of the meetings. In fact, your crystal ball was very clear. You predicted an agreement on coal and on methane, and you even predicted that India would turn up and make a significant commitment. What we didn't see was the China-US deal. What did you make of that? It was a complete surprise to everyone in the hall. It just broke at six o'clock. There was an announcement that was going to be a joint press conference, and it completely came out of the blue. It may be one of those things that was important only for the conference in that the talks were getting a bit bogged down. And I think this just gave a little bit of extra momentum. It made it clear that on the substance of the agreement, the US and China weren't going to disrupt things, that they were generally supportive. And I think that one of the things it will have done is give pause to those fossil fuel economies that have traditionally done all they can to block progress, like Saudi Arabia and Australia, to just stop and think, well, these are our two biggest markets. We can see what they're thinking. Maybe we need to pull back a bit in our criticism and our blocking attempts. It's hard to know exactly the extent to which that happened, but I definitely think it must have had an impact. Why don't we consider the big question then, and that's around the headline, which everybody kept talking about throughout the meetings, is the keeping warming at 1.5 Celsius above pre-industrial times. Is that still alive? Well, as Alak Sharma, the president of COP26, said, it is alive, but barely. And again, I think there's a wide degree of consensus on that. And I think this was a big push from the UK was to be able to get an agreement that they could say that 1.5 is alive. 
But what is different this COP than many previous ones is that there are fairly clear pathways to step up ambitions in a number of areas. There's the coal deals that we mentioned, which particularly the South Africa, which could be a real model for how the developed countries help developing countries to phase out their coal. The invitation to come back with with stronger commitments, which could happen on the back of some of these coal phase out deals or other things that happen. There's going to be a lot of impetus from the finance community. There's a lot of money waiting around, desperate to invest in green stuff and not having enough projects to be able to do that. And I think the agreements on deforestation and carbon markets will really release a lot of that and will actually change the pattern and even further accelerate the already rapid growth of things like renewables and electric vehicles, but also emissions reduction projects around the world. So I think, yes, 1.5 is just alive, but whereas in that situation, generally you would expect it to steadily decline, I think there's real hope that by this time next year, it might have started on the road to recovery. My take is perhaps I'm slightly less optimistic. I think that um, 1.5 might still be alive. There needs to be so much further movement over the coming year that it's barely flickering if, if it's still there. But, you know, let's hope that it is. And let's hope that the movement required over the coming year is achieved. Mike Scott, award-winning climate journalist. Thanks very much. Many thanks, Ian. And my thanks to Mike and to all my guests on Watch over the past couple of weeks. I hope they've been useful. Certainly, I've enjoyed bringing them together. And I certainly enjoyed my time in Glasgow. The regular weekly podcast will return as the Innovation Forum team looks forward to our own flagship Sustainable Landscapes and Commodities Conference at the end of November. So look out for that. Until then, goodbye.